Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning, Harvest Kale. Hope all of you are doing well. For those of you who are new, my name is Gurpreet. I'm one of the elders here at Harvest Kale, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to bring God's Word to all of us here this morning. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the game called Never Have I Ever. Uh, It's a game uh, that is played within smaller groups as an icebreaker. And what happens is it's usually when someone mentions something that they've never, ever done before. And those around them will either respond in affirming that, saying, oh yeah, no, I've never actually done that either. Or they would state otherwise, like, oh yeah, actually I've bungee jumped and bungee jumping feels something like this. Now, the reason that I'm sharing this is because never have I ever, ever in my whole life, thought that one day I'll be standing behind the pulpit and bringing God's word to an entire congregation. For those of you who know me, you know that I come from a different faith background. I came from a place that I thought God was distant and really out of reach uh, to a place of experiencing and understanding God as near and deeply personal. When that happened, my whole life completely flipped. It changed completely. You know, I went from a man from having, from feeling that I really had no sense of self-worth and self-value, that my life was really void of any sense of meaning, to an adult who today is growing in his recognition that he's deeply loved, fully forgiven, and finding ultimate meaning in the context of a relationship with Christ and seeing myself in his grand story. You see, for a lot of my life, I wanted to be the hero only to realize in my early 20s that I needed a hero. I needed to be rescued. I needed to be restored. I needed a savior. And it was at that very moment I remember, I was reduced to tears, both from a deep sense of profound sadness, but also from a deep sense of profound joy. It was crazy because it's funny, when I, I remember the church that I went to or came to faith in, and I would sit at this regular spot And some person, I don't know who that person is, even to this day, would put a full box of tissues underneath my seat. And though I don't really quite know who that person is, even today, I know that Christ became deeply personal to me. I remember thinking, what grace, what joy, I'm finally free. As all of you know, this year, the elders at Harvest KL have chosen the theme, Rise, Let Us Go From Here. And this particular theme comes from a particular text in John chapter 14, where Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to leave the world, but promised that he won't leave them alone as orphans. He promised them his Holy Spirit. Now, understandably, all of this was really confusing and really hard for all his disciples to grasp. There was almost the sense of tension, and we can kind of sense it in the text. There was this lostness, this confusion among the disciples. And after speaking a few more words and saying that the rulers of the world is the ruler of the world is coming, Christ said, "Rise, let us go from here." And in some way, this is a similar setting to which we have gone through over the last five or six months. We are in a global pandemic. There are, we are in the midst of many transitions. There are, there are many questions, there's many disappointments, there's much uncertainty. Yet as we sit under the weight of disappointment and uncertainty, and we process through the emotion that we all may feel, there comes a point that we as a church have to say, rise, 
let us go from here. And it is really with this hope that we would all together rise and go from here that the elders at Haverscale arrived at this theme for this year. Last month, we looked at what it means to rise in hope. This month, we're going to focus on what it means to rise in knowledge. So let's all turn our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 and hone in on verses 1 through 14. And as you open your Bibles, I'm going to share with you a personal story. Uh, funny enough, it's a story of when I first met Pastor Nate. I landed back in KL about 10 years ago after spending some time abroad. And my first week here was actually in March of 2016. And during my first week, it's when I met my then love interest, Bethany, now my wife, thankfully. And as our interest in each other grew, grew and progressed, I felt like, okay, I need to talk to her dad. And Pastor Nate just seemed to be like her dad. He was protective. He took care of his staff and his family. Uh, he had a big beard that just symbolizes a sense of authority. Uh, but also, he was Caucasian, so it just made sense in my head. Yeah, yes, that's Bethany's dad, so let me go talk to him. And so I made an appointment with Pastor Nate, and the first time that I met him was actually in Starbucks in Great Eastern towards the sitting side where people have conversation. I still remember looking across uh, this glass thing that was there as we see people walk in and out. And after some, talk, after some just small talk initially, I expressed my interest in Bethany. Pastor Nate looked at me, not really quite knowing who I was at that point, and really advised me to focus instead on God and focus on the Word of God. And now you can imagine my disappointment. Here I was, I just made my interest known in Bethany, and I'm told to focus on my Bible. But what disappointed me the most is not that Pastor Nate told me to focus on my Bible. I almost felt offended because I was already focusing on my Bible. I was already doing the things that he wanted me to do daily and frequently and regularly. I couldn't really fathom the fact that he was telling me to go deeper. I said, I was already there. Please tell me something new. You see, because I believed I was already at the level in which he was asking me to be, I was not able, at least at that point, to really heed his good advice. And we find ourselves in a similar setting here in Colossians. The disciples in Colossae felt like they were doing a lot of things well. They were bearing fruit. They were committed to spiritual disciplines, so much so that they started opening themselves up to other worldviews, to other philosophies, to other beliefs, to false teachers, all in their pursuit of what else. Like me, they jeered and said, tell us something new. And now to give us some context, Paul is the writer of the book of Colossians. He wrote it while he was in prison in Rome, and at some point he was uh, visited by this man named Epaphras. Epaphras heard the gospel, internalized the gospel, came to faith in Christ, now went back to his kampong, where he's from, Colossae, and planted a church there. And now he's actually going back to Paul, who was in prison at this time, to give a report on how the church is doing. And though there were many positives and fruits that were being born, out of that church. And many of all these things will be the brunt of our focus here today. There was also an increasing sense of despondency, an apathy, a wondering, a looking elsewhere, so much so that there rose within their midst false teachers that are starting now to, to gain a following. We know that these false teachers were particularly Jewish because they stressed on Old Testament laws and ceremonies. They were particularly Gnostic in that they laid emphasis on a special, deeper level of knowledge. They were especially exclusive because they stressed on special privilege just for, for a select few of people who form some sort of a philosoph uh, philosophical or, or um, uh, yeah, philosophical elite. 
it, they were inaudibly angelic in the sense that they, they, they really brought people to worshiping angels as mediators for God. But most damaging of all, it was they, expect, they exceptionally appealed to Christ. But while they acknowledged Christ the person, they denied the deity of Christ, which is why we see in Colossians one of the greatest declaration of Christ's deity in all of Scripture. In Colossians 1 verses 15 to 16, as well as Colossians 2 verse 9. So it's against this backdrop where the Colossians congregation is on the one hand, who on the one hand are abiding, but on the other hand are being lulled to sleep by, by the practice of spiritual disciplines that are now losing its meaning and leaving them exposed to false teachers. It is against this backdrop that Paul writes the letter to Colossians. There was mounting pressure. False teachers were knocking on the front entrance of the Colossians church, seeking to be let in. And though there was abiding fruit, there was also grave danger. Now let's look at how Paul begins the letter in Colossians chapter 1. Paul begins in this way. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We see Paul begin the letter with a salutation to introduce himself to his readers and he wishes God's blessing on them. He cites his apostolic calling to lend authority to some of the words that will follow. In fact, one commentator wrote, right on the onset of the letter, we see the whole doctrine of grace. A person is not what he has made himself, but what God has made him. Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God. Paul expressed who he is in light of who God has made him. That was his primary identity. There's no such thing then as a self-made man. There are only men who God has made. Now that begs the question for us. Who are we? Who has God made us? What is our primary identity? And having put our faith in Christ, we can confidently say that we are the children of God, son and daughters of the living King, fully redeemed, fully forgiven, fully loved. Paul goes on now to direct the letter to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Now think about that for a second. He said faith and, uh, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Despite just hearing that there's false teachers and, and many of the members of the congregation are being lured in that direction, he didn't address them as faith or, or as saints or faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. He's, oh, he didn't say saints and sometimes faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. He said saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because he had great confidence in the God who has called them to himself and that their capacity to be faithful had really nothing to do with them themselves, but had everything to do with a faithful God. He was confident if, if God had called them to himself in Christ, he himself would produce the fruit of faithfulness that he desired. Philippians 1.6 says that he who started a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Paul was confident of that. He was so assured of that truth. Now that doesn't mean that our lives as, as saints, as believers in Christ, are, are going to be lived perfectly. That does not mean that we won't struggle with, with sin. But what that means is that we will all have a daily fight to fight, a daily tendencies to battle, daily thoughts to take captive. But what that also means is there are daily victories that we can win, greater mountains for us to conquer. Why? Because greater is he who's in us than who is of this world. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. 
we are both saints by position and faithful brethren in practice. And as we all know, practice makes progress. To the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace to you and merited, and merited favor to you, and peace and inner confidence from God our Father. Paul goes on to say, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul gave thanks for his readers frequently. He rejoiced in the good testimony that he heard about the church in Colossae. Here, here in the Colossians passage, we see God is actually being recognized as the cause of goodness in his people. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. It was his strength, it was his might that produced the fruits of faithfulness that Paul is now rejoicing over. So every time we see some fruit produced in our lives and in the life of our brothers and sisters in Christ, we can rejoice because we know that it's God who produces that fruit. In times when someone is patient and, and it's really hard for them, when it's really hard for them to be patient, or, or when someone decides to love against the grain, when it's really hard for them to love at, at that particular moment, we see God at work and we can encourage one another and rejoice with one another. Paul also rejoiced when he heard of the tangible faith of the disciples in Colossae, which manifested itself through self-sacrificing love for one another. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. To put it another way, faith is the root of the Christian life, and love is its fruit. And this love is a direct result of the hope, the certainty that is laid up for them in heaven. It is the hope that then draws them closer and deeper in faith, and in turn produces the fruit of love. One commentator puts it this way, he says, Faith is the soul looking upward to God. It rests on the past work of Christ. Love look, looks outwards to others. It works in the present. And hope looks towards the future. It anticipates the future. In the Colossians church, faith and love sprang from or was, was produced on account of hope, a confidence in what God will do in the future based on what he has said and promised us in the past, that we will spend eternity with him, that what we now see in part, then we will see in full. See, church, the confidence that the Colossians church had in the certainty of what tomorrow will be radically changed the way in which they lived their lives in the present. They lived in the present by manifesting faith in Christ and loving the saints. And I think in so many ways, so can we, as we anticipate Christ's return. Paul then reminds his readers that the gospel has not only come to them exclusively, but was also spreading throughout the world. He goes on to say, of this, this hope, we have heard before the word of, which you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world and is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you have learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Paul is saying that this hope that you've heard from the word of truth, the very hope that is producing all this great fruit in you, has also gone to many places and is also increasingly bearing fruit in others. It's almost like he's saying, wow, you guys are awesome because what you've received is so awesome and, and, and this very awesome thing that you've received now is producing awesomeness in many other places, in many other people. 
You see, he puts things in proper perspective for the Colossians church, and I believe for us as well, that the gift of the gospel is as much for us, but also for others. And ultimately, it's really about God. It's about His glory. It's about His grace. It's about His mercy, His restorative and redemptive power, and His capacity really to produce fruit. Now, how can we be so sure that it is God that produces the fruits? In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 to 7, Paul, Paul writes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So church, God gives the growth. And whatever internal battles that we may fight, cry out to Christ. Why? Because it is He is going to give us the growth. And in those moments when we actually are able to overcome the often taxing battles that we fight with sin, praise God. It is He who gives us the growth. Paul then goes on to affirm Epaphras as a legitimate leader, saying in verse 7 and 8, He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras is a genuine servant leader. Paul affirms him, calls him his own, imparts confidence in him, and then encourages him in order to steady his readers. So up to this point, we've seen that Paul has introduced himself. He's established his God-given God authority. He has given thanks to God for the awesome fruit that God is producing in their midst. He's also affirmed the congregation of the impact of the hope of the gospel that it has had on their lives, but also on the life of others around them like them. And finally, he's now drawing their attention back to the very person that had delivered the gospel message to them, Epaphras. Paul then goes on to say, and so, and in the NIV translation, it means it's it translated to for this reason. For what reasons? For the reasons that they are abiding and bearing fruit. For this reason, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's fascinating, don't you think? That despite the fact that the Colossians church is doing so well, producing all this amazing fruit, which in itself is really a product of them abiding in Christ, here comes Paul, having affirmed them, goes on to pray, go deeper in Christ, to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You know, when I think about it, it's like me. When I was younger, having put a lot of effort in my school and my studies, and I get a really good grade, I get really excited to go tell my parents, hey, look, I, got, I did really well. And, and they having affirmed me, telling me it's a good job and so on, they say, now son, keep digging deeper in your books. Of course, the difference between the two is that my grades are really an effect or direct outcome of my effort. But we know that spiritual fruit is not. It is God who gives the growth. So why then did Paul pray that? Why did he say, well done, praise God, now go deeper? I believe it's because he really understood that their very lives depended on it. You see, faithfulness today does not lead to faithfulness tomorrow. We can produce good fruit today, but it does not guarantee that we will produce good fruit tomorrow. And, it's be and because God is the one that ultimately produces the fruit, the implication then is that we must stay vitally connected to Him. How can we do that? By growing in the knowledge of His will. And it is for this reason that Paul wished for the Colossians church to be filled with additional knowledge, not new knowledge. He desired them to develop more fully the partial knowledge that they already had. See, the ability to navigate through life successfully, to experience joy and experience truth and to know peace, to experience freedom, to be able to be patient and endure, 
really depended on their growth in the knowledge of God's will. Now you may ask, what is God's will? How can anyone know what God's will is? I would suggest that God's will is revealed to us through His Word in the Bible. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good, may be complete, equipped for every good work. The very words of the Bible is breathed out by God. It is his self-disclosure. It is his heart put on display and made known to all of us. And it is profitable for us in many ways, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. But why does this all matter? So that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. In fact, when Paul is praying for the Colossians church to grow in the knowledge of the will of God, he's actually seeking for them to be complete to be equipped for every good work, that they may be filled with additional knowledge and develop more fully the partial knowledge that they already had of God. We must also note that God's will, while it's revealed to us through His Word, is made known to us by the Holy Spirit's teaching ministry. In John chapter 14, verses 25, Jesus says, He says, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you, all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. The Bible is God's word and the Bible is our reference point. Now recall that Paul prays that, that we are to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What is knowledge? Knowledge is the combination of wisdom and understanding. Understanding is a function of clear analysis of facts and information. It is, is, it's taking knowledge, it's internalizing it, it's wrestling with it and making sense of it, and then it turns into understanding. What knowledge, what understanding does, it, it, it helps us see things more clearly. It opens up before us fresh new perspectives. Spiritual wisdom, on the other hand, is, is talking about knowledge and understanding, but, but now it's applying it practically in the choices that we make on a day-to-day -day basis. It's the translation of knowledge, which has been distilled down to understanding and now being applied in practical decisions that we make daily and in the ways in which we live our lives. So as we grow in the knowledge of God's will, as we immerse ourselves in the Word of God and are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and as we grow in understanding, as we wrestle with God's Word and distill it down to our hearts, it leads to us walking in spiritual wisdom, in wise living, where our decisions are really shaped by the priority of the gospel and our relationship with God. As means of application, therefore, we, are Christ we as Christians are to pursue to be filled with the knowledge of God's will by reading His word, by immersing ourselves in prayer, and by the practice of spiritual disciplines. One commentator puts it quite aptly. He says, we pray not in order to escape life, but in order to engage it. Not in order to withdraw ourselves from life, but in order to live in a world in a manner in which it ought to be lived. You know, it amazes me when we look at Mark chapter 6, verse 46. We see Jesus and his disciples, who were actually seeking rest, were unexpectedly met by a crowd when they went to a desolate place. Yet Christ, who had compassion on them, thought them, and eventually when he dismissed them all, did not go right away to rest. Instead, he went up to the mountain to pray to connect with his Father, and to be filled with the knowledge of his will. It was this knowledge 
that then empowered him to engage in life again. In fact, it was that time of connection, connecting with God and knowing the knowledge of his will and developing in the knowledge of his will. That was his rest. Imagine for a second how different our lives would be if every time we needed rest, we switched off our TV, we turned away from being lulled to sleep by our, from our, by our phones, and instead connected deeply with God in prayer to be renewed and to be refreshed to engage in life again. Not that we shouldn't watch TV or not that we shouldn't keep uh, informed on what are the current events in our world and so on, but that we would draw rest from the very source of rest himself. All right, so, so far we have talked through one question, what is knowledge? Now let's look at why. Why is it important for us to pursue knowledge? What are the effects or the outcomes of true knowledge? Circling back to our text here, Paul goes on to say, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Clearly, we see that the outcome of knowledge is practical. It results in them walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Now, the term walk actually symbolizes growth and progress. It really symbolizes a living by faith on a day-to-day -day basis, one day at a time. The problem is that we can get really intoxicated with knowledge by never really knowing or get to know the knowledge giver. We can, can be really smart but never really wise. We can always be learning, but never arriving at the knowledge of truth. 2 Timothy 3 verse 7. What I mean by all of that is that biblical truths are practical. They're not merely theoretical. It leads to action. And what Paul is saying when he connects knowledge to its outcome is that doctrine and conduct are inseparable. Right conduct must always be found in right thinking, and right thinking must always lead to right conduct. If indeed we are growing in the knowledge of God, then it would be really evident in our lives by the way in which we live in increasing grace. Both the grace to be bold and the grace to be humble. Both the grace to be strong and the grace to be weak. It is grace applied in every facet of our lives. But what does it really mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Allow me to posit four characteristics from God's word. First, it includes bearing fruit. Walking man, in the manner worthy of the Lord means bearing fruit in character, in conduct, in every type of good work. Second, it means increasing, that there's an element of growth implied in our lives, that there would be progress in, under, in understanding and also the application of God's word. And bearing fruit and increasing are, are quite interconnected. The more we increase in the knowledge of God, the more we bear fruit. The more we bear fruit, the more we increase in the knowledge of God. Augustine said it in this way when he talked about faith and understanding. He said, faith is understanding step, and understanding is faith's reward. In other words, faith leads to understanding in as much as understanding leads to faith. It's neither, it's not either or, it's actually both. Thirdly, it includes gaining strength, being, being strengthened according to his glorious might, which manifests itself in a life of a believer through steadfastness. There's like a resoluteness in this person's character, an endurance and a patience under trial with great joy. 
And lastly, it includes expressing gratitude to God, giving thanks to God the Father for what? For qualifying us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It is gratitude that is birthed from a heart that is so soaked in the gospel that it produces a joy that far outweighs any immediate circumstance. So to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in the Lord is to bear fruit, is to grow and increase, it's to progress, it's to be strengthened, and lastly, it's to have lives lived in gratitude. And all of these are really effects or outcomes of true knowledge, knowledge of the will of God, which comes to us through His Word and empowered by His Spirit. So by way of application then, desire the outcome of knowledge. Why? Because it drives us closer to the source of true knowledge. So, so far we've looked at the question, what is knowledge? We've also looked at the outcomes or the effects of knowledge. Now, we'll move on to our last and final question, what is the source of knowledge? And to answer this question, let's continue to move through the final segment of our text here today in Colossians. Paul goes on to say, he says, He, Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Now ponder on this thought with me for a second. Could knowing that we have been delivered from darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son be the ultimate source of knowledge? I believe the answer is a firm yes, because the knowledge of redemption and forgiveness of sin is the key that unlocks our minds to have a proper view of all of life. It is the knowledge that grants us the proper lens to see clearly, to have the humility to see things as they are, but also to have the audacity to see things as they ought to be. This knowledge is the knowledge of freedom, that we are not defined by how much we have or how much we know. It's the knowledge of peace that even though we may feel restless at any one given point in time, we have peace with God the Father through Christ the Son. It's a knowledge of joy that we have been restored to our proper position and redeemed back to our eternal home. It is the knowledge of contentment that Christ is the only source of true contentment, releasing us from the pursuits of all other things that we feel will at last satisfy. It's the knowledge of everlasting life, knowing that though sorrow may tarry through the night, joy will come in the morning, that what we see in part now, then we shall see in full, that we will see Christ face to face. It's a knowledge of life abundant, that even as we wait to return to our eternal home, that we know that our lives here have a, has a purpose, that we have good works in which we are to walk in, and that we are designed to live empowered by the Holy Spirit, and designed to flourish. It's the knowledge of victory, that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. In fact, it's the greatest life-giving, hope-inducing, clarifying knowledge of all. And Christ is the source of that knowledge. In fact, if we go down to Colossians 2 verses 1 to 3, we see clearly it indicates that the knowledge of God is in Christ, and that Christ and that in Christ are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is in Christ. Christ is in all and through all and above all. Christ is all in all. So by, by way of application then, we are to treasure the source of knowledge. We are to treasure Christ. So far, we have addressed the questions, what is knowledge? We've also addressed the question, what is the outcome or the effects of knowledge? And now we've seen, who is the ultimate source of knowledge? And all these questions actually point to one overarching reality. 
that we are re to remain deeply connected in Christ himself, if we are all to, to produce fruit and to bear fruit and to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in ways in which the Lord has called us to live. But I think it doesn't really take a whole sermon for us to realize that. I think in many ways we already know that even prior to hearing the sermon preached today. We, for the most part, already know that the only way for us to have life-giving and love-inducing, soul-enriching knowledge is really if we have a relationship with the source of knowledge himself, Jesus Christ. Now, it's not the theory that we really struggle with. It is the application. Why then is it so hard for us to apply? Why then is it that we struggle? You know, I find it so fascinating that Christ being the ultimate source of knowledge himself, did not use his knowledge to distance himself, but to draw us near. He didn't use the knowledge to put pe push people out, but rather to bring people in. He didn't use his knowledge to tear people down, he used it to build people up. He used his full and complete and perfect knowledge not to place a divide between us and himself, but really to build a bridge between us and himself. Think about it. He knew what was going to happen to him, he knew that he, being God himself, was going to be mocked, was going to be scorned, was going to be stripped, was going to be beaten, was going to be broken, was going to be ultimately killed. Yet he kept silent when he was pushed to the absolute brink. Now I consider how different my response would have been. When pushed to the brink, for whatever reason it may be, I know it's not so much a matter of if I'm going to say something, it's really a matter of when. I know that the barrage of words that would, that would eventually flow out of my mouth would be like weapons of unruly words set hard to defend and then to attack. And even as I speak those words in that state of mind, making every attempt to get things back to normal again, I spew these words really out of a place of half-truths and half-knowledge because the reality is I know nothing at all. Nothing for certain at all. My response then is really rooted in my assumptions that are pressing hard against my felt emotions that are being spurred on by my desire to want to be liberated, to move past this pain, and to have things really go back to normal again. If I then, operating on half knowledge and half untruths, feel so justified to say a barrage of words to defend myself, how much more should have Christ, having full knowledge, being himself the fullness of knowledge, having absolute uncertainty, being the creator himself who is now being tortured by his creation, how much more should he have said one word? That is all that would, it would have taken. One word, and it would all been have, would have been over. One word and all the pain and humiliation that he experienced at the hands of his very creation would have stopped, and we would all be doomed. Yet here we have the man of Christ, full of knowledge and truth, when pushed to the brink, said not a word, none at all. He being the word himself, said not a word, not in the absence of knowledge, but in the presence of it. While he was the creator of the universe, he's also the lover of our souls. While he's God the judge, he's also God the savior. And because he had knowledge, and he has knowledge, knowledge of our sin, knowledge of our rebellion, he used not that knowledge to drop an inseparable divide between us and himself. He used that knowledge to drop a redemption plan in order to bring us home. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 5. He himself having eternal glory took on flesh and clothed himself in our sorrows. He himself was stripped so that we can be clothed. He himself was torn apart so that we can be put together. He himself placed on himself or allowed it to be placed on him the crown of thorns so that we can have placed on our heads the eternal crown of glory. It is finished, the Lord Christ said. He used his knowledge to finally keep, didn't use his knowledge to finally keep us at bay or at a distance. He used his knowledge to build a bridge. And I believe it's when we truly see this Christ with all he knows and the price that he so freely paid, even rising again to secure our hope, sealing our victory, it is then we truly begin to pursue hard after him, after the knowledge of God and his will, not out of a place of fear or a desire to belong, but out of a heart that is filled with gratitude, overflowing with worship and love, because Christ is both our Lord and friend. We already belong to him. The source of knowledge himself made a way for us to know true knowledge and finally gets us journeying back to our eternal home. Church, because Jesus live, lives, we also will live. In the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We are on our journey home. Pursue Christ, desire Christ, treasure Christ, Christ in us, the eternal weight of glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, uh, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are the source of knowledge, that you know all things. You have knowledge of everything around us. You are sovereign and in control. But Lord, that you are also good. You use not that knowledge to condemn us. You use that knowledge to draw us closer to you. You made a way, Lord, when there wasn't a way. You died the death that we deserve so that we can have a relationship with you to be restored and to redeem, to know that we're fully loved. Father, I pray that you would continue to help us here at Harvest Kale to pursue hard after that knowledge from a heart that is so soaked in your gospel that we get to do these things, not that we have to do these things, that we would desire to know you more, to walk in your ways, to apply your word of truth, to grow in deeper intimacy with you through understanding the knowledge of your will and spending time with you daily. Father, we need you, Lord. We know that our very lives depend on it. Our very ability to walk through life and experience joy and peace, to be able to endure and stand firm, really comes from your strength, from your might, from your capacity to do all these things in us. Father, we pray that you continue to draw us close that you continue to give us the hope of eternity, knowing that our light and momentary afflictions here on earth is producing in us the eternal weight of glory. Lord, we need you. We want you. We want to live for you. Renew our hearts afresh. Renew our minds afresh so that we can live lives recommitted to you for your purposes, for your glory, and for our good. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.